Good morning, church. Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Exodus 18, 13 through 26. Please follow along in your own Bibles on the screen out in front, or simply listen as the passage is read aloud. The next day, Moses took his seat to hear the people's disputes against each other. They waited before him from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he asked, what are you really accomplishing here? Why are you trying to do all this alone while everyone stands around you from morning till evening? Moses replied, because the people come to me to get a ruling from God. When a dispute arises, they come to me, and I am the one who settles the cases between the quarreling parties. I inform the people of God's decrees and give them his instructions. This is not good, Moses' father-in-law exclaimed. You're going to wear yourself out, and the people too. This job is too heavy a burden for you to handle all by yourself. Now listen to me and let me give you a word of advice, and may God be with you. You should continue to be the people's representative before God, bringing their disputes to him. Teach them God's decrees and give them his instructions. Show them how to conduct their lives. But select from all the people some capable, honest men who fear God and hate bribes. Appoint them as leaders over groups of 1,000, 100, 50, and 10. They should always be available to solve the people's common disputes, but have them bring the major cases to you. Let the leaders decide the smaller matters themselves. They will help you carry the load, making the task easier for you. If you follow this advice, and if God commands you to do so, then you will be able to endure the pressures, and all these people will go home in peace. Moses listened to his father's laws and vice and followed his suggestions. He chose capable men from all over Israel and appointed them as leaders over the people. He put them in charge of groups of 1,000, 100, 50, and 10. These men were always available to solve the people's common disputes. They brought the major cases to Moses, but they took care of the smaller matters themselves. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, my name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors at High Rock Church, and it's great to be worshiping with you all this morning. And as I said before, especially if you're new with us, we're, we're glad that you're here. I know it can be intimidating to go and visit a church for the first time, so we're glad that you were bold this morning and hope that you feel welcome and comfortable among us uh, and that you feel like you're part of the family. Today, we are in um, Exodus chapter 18, and Today's sermon is actually going to be broken up a little bit into uh, two primary sections. The first piece that we're going to explore is um, what do we learn specifically from this passage in Exodus chapter 18 uh, and kind of the specific takeaways and applications from that. And then the second piece is going to be us looking at kind of more uh, an intangible global truth that we see in chapter 18, uh, but that then is expanded and, and 
deepened over the course of Scripture um, and in early Christian community. And so we're going to then look at that in the second section. But we're going to begin with piece number one, um, which is kind of the practical. What do we take? What are the practical applications uh, and takeaways from today's text? And if you have your Bibles with you, uh, please have them open. Aside from one text that I I really wanted to highlight, uh, the rest of them I won't be showing on the screen. So it's great to have uh, Exodus chapter 18 open in front of you. I think if you need them, there might be a couple Bibles in the back. Uh, But we're going to be walking through, and especially we're going to be looking at a few of the verses in chapter 18 before what uh, Sister DeVita read. So there will be um, some that we didn't actually read there. So uh, chapter 18 recounts the story of Moses' father-in-law, this guy named Jethro, coming to visit Moses and to hear about all of the incredible things that God had been doing for Moses and for Israel. If you remember, all the way back in the beginning of Exodus, uh, Moses had killed an Egyptian. Uh, he had fled Egypt trying to you know, save his own skin, and he had gone to the land of Midian for refuge. And while he was in the land of Midian, he had met and married a woman named Zipporah, and Jethro is Zipporah's father. He was also a priest of Midian, so he was an accomplished and influential man among his own people. We also find out early in chapter 18 that Moses' family has not been with him throughout all of the activity that we have been experiencing uh, or reading about in uh, Egypt and Israel. So uh, he has been on his own. We didn't know that before, uh, and their absence kind of in those stories was surprising, but now we find out why, because somewhere along the line, Moses had sent them back to live with her father in Midian, presumably because Moses knew the dangers that lie ahead. Also, he knew the focus that it would require of him as the leader, and so he had sent his family away for a time. But now, Jethro, his wife, his sons uh, arrive to see him. The earlier parts of chapter 18, before the text that we read, uh, begin to share about the interactions between Moses and Jethro, and they really describe what is a very warm and friendly relationship. We're told uh, in verse 6 that, that Jethro went um, and he sent word to Moses about their arrival. Uh, what would happen is Israel is, you know, it's a nation that's got a lot of people. It's mobile right now. But certainly outside the camp, at the edges of the camp, there would have been guards or some kind of security force out there. And so as Jethro approaches and they say, hey, who are you? Hey, I'm Jethro. I'm Moses' father-in-law. Please tell him that I'm on my way to see him. This kind of advance warning was traditional at the time. It not only kind of formally announced a visitor among the people, but it also gave the host kind of the requisite time to hospitably prepare the home and the table for arriving guests. And so uh, in those first few verses, this kind of this part of the story, everything looks pretty normal. This is fairly common of what we see in ancient Near Eastern custom and social dynamics. When you get to verse 7, things begin to become a little bit atypical. We see in verse 7 that so warm is the relationship between Moses and his father Jethro that after hearing of Jethro's arrival, and Moses' wife and kids would have been traveling behind, usually the kind of men and leaders were out in front, and then the women and children and others were behind, so maybe even a couple days behind. But after hearing that Jethro is coming to visit him, Moses doesn't wait in his home for Jethro to arrive. Moses goes out to Jethro. 
which would have been a deep sign of respect and honor toward his father-in-law. And not only does Moses go out on the road to personally greet him and welcome him and walk him back, but when he gets there, he bows down, you know, face, forehead to the ground. He stands up. He kisses him. Right? There is a, a strong display of affection and warmth and care from Moses to Jethro. That warmth then continues as Moses brings Jethro back to his tent and, and begins to tell him the incredible stories of what God has done for the people of Israel. And Jethro responds to the success and the joy and the, and the winning of a different nation with personal delight. Right? Jethro's not jealous because his, Moses' nation is, right? There's this personal joy and delight as he hears the stories and as he begins to praise God for all that he has accomplished for Israel. So from the reading of early chapter 18, we are given this image of a very warm friendship between two men, between two leaders of different nations, and while the Amalekites in the chapter before that we looked at last week had arrived and, and had come with hostility and had attacked, Jethro comes in chapter 18 in peace. He was greeted warmly. He was honored on the road. He was welcomed into the home. And he had been taken into Moses' confidence with a sharing of stories and testimony of God's goodness. And he had responded to all of that with joy and delight. And so there's this deep warmth that is kind of set up in the beginning of chapter 18. The sun sets, they go to sleep, the sun rises, and a new day begins. Verse 13 says that the next day, right after that, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the people, and they stood around him from morning until evening. While Moses had worked hard to welcome and honor Jethro on the day of his arrival, the next day Moses is up early and out the door to work. No time for showing his father-in-law around, no time for introducing him to other leaders in the camp. Moses has to get to it. And the work that he is doing is he is serving as judge for the people of the nation when there is a dispute or disagreement among them. Now, the really, uh, the people who are really loving church and sermons and are really paying attention are thinking, this is an odd activity to be happening right now in Israel. Israel has just escaped by the skin of their teeth a warring nation coming after them on horseback and chariots through a giant sea that was split on both sides. They have been wandering through a desert, couldn't find food, miraculously provided. Couldn't find water, miraculously provided. Oh no, opposing nation comes in battles, fight all day long and win. And now Moses is sitting in judgment as all the people come and say, this person stole my ox. That's not his ox, that's mine. Right, like there's all of this dramatic stuff happening all through chapters 1 to 17. And now in 18, Moses just sits on his little chair all day long as everybody comes and sits and presents their quarrels and their squabbles to him. And he decides who's right. It doesn't make sense. And if you were thinking that, which I know most of you were because you were so intensely in, you know, invested in the sermon. If you were thinking that, that's because you're right. This is not chronological. Chapter 18 is not the next thing that happens after the Amalekites come and go. Biblical writers, ancient Near Eastern, ancient writers often would abandon chronology for the sake of theme. 
And chapter 17 and 18 are set up as themes. The Amalekite thing, that makes perfect sense chronologically. What happens in chapter 18 doesn't. But the reason it's there is because in chapter 17, you have a warring nation. Chapter 18, you have a peaceful nation. Chapter 17, you have these people who hate Israel. Chapter 18, you have the warmth of this embrace with Jethro. There's, there's, a, there's a, a, a balance that's being laid out here. So if you're thinking this doesn't make sense, it's because it doesn't. This is most likely chronologically coming after Mount Sinai, after the law has been given down, after Moses actually has a bunch of rules and regulations, so to define a community, then he begins to sit in judgment and declare those rules and regulations for the people as they have disputes. So this is something that's a little bit later in our narrative, but it's been pushed up to chapter 18 because thematically it aligns with chapter 17, and that's why we're in it. Anyway, so when there were disputes, disputes among the people, which they couldn't resolve, they all said, well, let's take it to Moses, present their case before him, and he would then apply God's judgment and give them a decision. Of course, there are a lot of people in Israel. And so what you have is just group after group after group standing around all day long while Moses sits and listens to a dispute, asks his questions, gives a judgment. They move out. Next one comes in, just like a courtroom would. But there are just an incredible amount of people having disputes in Israel at this point. And so there are these hordes, these crowds of people, and they're just standing around all day long, some of them probably standing for days in a row, waiting to finally have their case brought before it. And so when Jethro wakes up in the morning, and he goes out to see his son-in-law, and he sees Moses sitting on this chair for hours and hours and hours on end, while other people are standing around doing absolutely nothing for hours and hours and hours on end, Jethro walks up to his son-in-law and says, what are you doing? Like, why are all of these people just standing around all day long while you sit and judge them? Moses, kind of in a very likable Humility says, because they keep asking me to. Like, they keep coming forward, and so I keep giving them judgments. And Jethro, you know, the warmth of friendship and relationship allows you to be honest and forthright. And he just says to Moses, this isn't good. It's not sustainable. It's not good for you. It's not good for the people who are coming and standing around all day, sometimes for multiple days waiting to be heard. No, you're going to wear yourself out and you're going to wear your people out. And then Jethro issues that great line. This job is too heavy a burden for you to handle all by yourself. And so Jethro says, listen to me. Let me, let me as your father-in-law, let me give you a word of advice. And then he goes on to make the following suggestions. Moses, when it comes to representing the people before God, you should do that. You should be the intermediary. You should be the intercessor between the two. That's good for you to do. And when it comes to teaching the people about God's truth and how they are to live their lives, you should do that too. That's your job. That's the role. You should, you should communicate to the people this is how we are to live. However, when it comes to sitting as judge over all of these disputes and disagreements, you need to share that burden with the larger community. So I want you to go and find some capable and some honest men who fear God and who hate bribes, i.e., who fear God and who will faithfully dispense justice according to God's word and not their own thinking, and men who hate bribes and therefore can't be paid off in order to make specific judgments. So go out and find yourself some capable and some godly men 
and then give them authority over groups of 10 or 50 or 100 or 1,000, depending on their experience and their maturity and their capacity, and only have them bring the major cases that nobody, that they cannot handle themselves before you for you to decide on. And so what Jethro says to Moses is, the system that they have in place is bad for everyone. It's bad for Moses. He's going to get burnt out. In fact, the burnout word, uh, the, it says that you're going to, you know, wither here. It's a, it's a very agricultural term, like a plant that is not being nourished by water but is overly exposed to the sun and is beginning to deteriorate and wither. It's kind of even like the, where we get our burnout from, right? Like you're going to burn out. You're going to wither away. It's not good for you. It's not good for the people who have to wait all day. It's not good for the men who could be helping you out, who could be actively involved in the affairs of the nation, but instead are being underutilized and just sitting around at home. This is a bad system for everyone. And Moses listens. He's tired, so he's happy to listen. He assigns different men over different groups, and he delegates the lion's share of Israel's disagreements and disputes into the hands of men that can handle those for him. And so the first piece of this sermon, which is us looking at the specific teaching and application that we can take from this text, is fairly obvious. This text helpfully reminds us that it doesn't make sense for one man or one woman to stand at the center of a community and to bear all the burdens for that community. Instead, the burdens of a community should be shared. Some will be able to bear more, some less. That's fine but it should never be one person who stands at the center while everyone else just stands around. And this lines up with what we've been talking about from Ephesians chapter 4, that, that some people are going to be shepherds, and some will be teachers, and some will be apostle, or apostles, and some will be evangelists, and some will be prophets, that all of us will have different parts in a community to play. Not one person. Jesus was all of those things perfectly all by himself. He can stand at the center of a community and not be overwhelmed or burnt out. But everyone else can't, right? And so we then come together, and we inhabit bits and pieces of who he is based on what gifts he gave us, and then we begin to uh, let those gifts be explored and, and expressed within the life of the community. Now, certainly that can be true for a spiritual community. I am the, the lead pastor of High Rock Church in Brookline. I should not be the only one who does everything, especially when we have so many godly and capable people that are part of the church. Those burdens should be shared. And honestly, as, if you don't know it, I'm, my last day is May 31st, and I'm transitioning out. And honestly, when I look back at the last 10 or 11 years, this is probably my biggest regret of them all. I didn't share enough. I think there were people that were willing. I think I was willing. But I didn't know how to create a system or a structure that allowed other women and men to rise up in leadership and to take on authority and to carry more weight. We had people who did that in pieces. But I am actively bad at creating and sustaining that kind of system. That has become very clear. And I deeply regret that I wasn't able to do a better job of that, that, that too much of it went through me and relied on me, not because necessarily I was more capable, but because I was so bad at actually figuring out a system that would distribute that and deploy it through the rest of the church. And I, I pray that whoever comes next or whatever system comes next, that the gifts and the godliness of this community that can, can be more readily activated and expressed, developed and deployed for the sake of God's kingdom. But this doesn't just apply to a spiritual community. 
It may apply to your workplace or to your home or to your larger family system where one person kind of stands at the center of it all and everyone else just stands around. There are a lot of very capable people in this church, and it would be easy for you to rest on your own competencies and to carry more and more weight over time because you are able to carry so much. But in the end, that is unsustainable. And if you're trying to build a healthy system around you, then it requires that you begin to delegate and distribute things to those who are around you. I don't know what that might look like in your life because everyone's circumstances are so different, but I suspect that if you are standing at the center of a system or if you are doing so much and refusing to allow others or not able to allow others to come in and to enter in and to bear that burden with you, then I suspect God will make that fairly clear right about this point in the sermon and you'll be able to move forward from there on your own. That's piece number one. It is a simple and straightforward takeaway from this text that when you exist in a community, it doesn't make any sense for one person to bear all of the weight and for everybody else to just stand around and observe. That's the first piece. It's easy. It's obvious from the text. The second piece that I want to explore is a larger truth that I think we see expressed but only in part in Exodus chapter 18. So the reason that we're studying Exodus right now in our two churches as, sermon, as the sermon series is because when we thought, we thought that a story about a community in transition that is experiencing a new beginning would be a helpful story for our churches as we are in transition and entering into new beginnings. And so we thought if we can look back at the story of God and God's people and how God was creating and and forming a new community, then perhaps there might be lessons in that that we could take with our churches as we think about what is God doing and how is he forming in us a new kind of community. And so I want to take a look, uh, take a moment and look at something um, formative that we see happening in the text, but then expand that kind of into the larger story of God's people beyond Israel. Um, Yeah, so, you know, I have kids, some of you have kids, some of you teach Kids Rock, uh, some of you are school teachers. Um, With children, one of the challenges that you engage fairly early on is the sharing challenge, where... um, Apparently, we are born deeply selfish. And um, for a kid, early on, like what they want to do is keep, right? They, they always want to take it to themselves. And, and then, you know, all mine, it's all mine, not hers, is what Agnes says 75% of the day, right? Like, not lose, it's my, right? Like, because she's deeply selfish. She's three, so there's hope. But presently, <laughs> presently, she's deeply selfish. And, and she's not that bad. But, but she likes, she wants it for herself, right? She wants to keep it. And so part of what we do in teaching and training children is beginning to say to them, no, no, no. When you have something, if it can be split up, give part of it, right? If it's a piece of cake, Cut it in half and let your sister have a little bit. Or if it's something that can't be divided up, 
Give your sister a little bit of time with it, and then she'll give it back, right? Share. We know that this is just good social behavior. If there comes a day in the future where we are low on resources and where our survival depends on it, we sure hope that we are part of a sharing environment, right? Like, we know that this is good for us as a species to be a sharing kind of, and so, and, 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 and so we begin to teach and to train. Listen, don't hoard this stuff for yourselves. You need to begin to distribute this and to share it with those who are around you. This is what God is doing in Scripture. We are the selfish children, and he is trying to teach and train us to become a sharing community. The kind of people who do not grasp and hold on and hold tight to our anything, but instead become open and and express and begin to share readily with everyone who is around us. What we see in Exodus chapter 18 is a formative moment in the life of God's people where they are beginning, just in small part, to experience what it means to be a sharing community. In this path, all they're doing is just sharing the work of leadership, the burden of of this work. But it is one formative moment buried inside a larger movement among God's people to become the kind of people that share with each other. In recent years, a new kind of economy has emerged. We call it the sharing economy, or at least an expanded version of anything that ever existed before. The sharing economy is built on the idea that people have resources and then they would be willing to share those resources with others for a price. So we have ride shares where somebody has a car, but they're not using the car in this moment or now they just buy the car for this purpose, but they're going to use that car and they're going to let other people for a small fee share in that in that car. We have homeowners who share their home with people that need a place to stay. We have tool shares because not everyone needs to own a chainsaw and a jackhammer, but once in a while, it's nice to have that. So somebody who does have it, rather than going, you know, they rent it out for a small fee. There's, this is an economy that is built on the idea of sharing resources that we already have as a way of making profit. And likewise, there is a sharing economy While there is a sharing economy emerging in the world, what we see in the story of Scripture is that God is creating a sharing spiritual community. The intent, obviously, is a little different. It's not meant as an economic platform, but it is a spiritual platform whereby we can begin to live into the fullness and the beauty of Christian community. So if you look at the whole of Scripture... What you see is that God is slowly crafting a community that shares everything with one another. Exodus 18 is one simple step. You share the burden and the work of leadership. Moses is keeping it all to himself. That burden is too great for him. It's bad for him, bad for everyone else around him. And so share it, right? But as Christian community is born, we find this idea that Um, of sharing spiritual community is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian community. Immediately after Jesus ascends to the Father and the Holy Spirit falls on that earliest Christian community in Acts, we find that one of the defining features of that community is that they share everything. On the screen, you're going to see Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 35. All the believers were united in heart and mind. 
They felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon them all. There were no needy people among them because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those who were in need. This is extraordinary. The outworking of that first and authentic Christian community that is overwhelmed by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in their life is that I do not consider my possessions to be my own. Rather, I understand what I have to be a possession of the entire community. And if there is someone in need in that community, then it is my responsibility to provide for that need, given that these resources are just as much theirs as they are mine. And for some, that meant they went out and they sold off the land, which they used as income, right? Or they sold off their homes in order to be sure that everyone in the community was properly provided for. Most of us don't think that way. Most of us think that the money in our account or the equity in our home is ours. But let's ask the question, why do we think that? Why do most of us think, and maybe we would say that it belongs to God and to us, or we are stewards of it on God's behalf. But why would we say that it's ours and not yours? This, this is mine, not yours. Is there anything biblical that would instruct us that way? Or is that a, a concept of the world that we inhabit? One of my favorite stories, I'm going to slightly embarrass somebody. Andy, you should step out of the room if you want to be slightly embarrassed. <laughs> One of my favorite, I've been in, I had an Ohana group now for like 10 or 11 years since we started the church. Uh, people have come and, come and gone depending on transitions, you know, life transitions and all that stuff. One of my favorite moments in all those 10 or 11 years at Ohana Group was one night we were sitting around in the living room having dinner and sharing life, and one of our members was talking about um, how um, her living situation was unsustainable, um, her roommate, it was not a, a good or healthy situation, but she felt quite stuck because um, she didn't know what else to do because she was dependent on the roommate's rent for going in, so she couldn't kick the roommate out. She couldn't afford to move out and go find someplace on her own. It was the middle of the, it was just, a, it was a hard situation. And so she was just kind of telling us about, like, I don't know what to do. I feel stuck. And, um, and I don't have the resources to, like, I can't do anything else right now, so I'm just stuck. And Andy, in this kind of, it's just like, he, I don't think he, I don't know if he's thinking about it, but he just like kind of very, he's like, well, we have money. And it was just this, like, very sweet moment where she was thinking, like, I don't have the resources to ask this person to move out so that I can be in a healthier environment. I don't have the money. Therefore, I don't have an option. And Andy just, like, just quickly was just like, but we have, we have money. Like, we, all have, we have money. And, like, was immediately thinking very communally, like, well, of course we all have, like, of course we can afford that. Like, look at all the people in this room. But, you know. 
And so there was this like very communal way of thinking about that moment, even though that person was just like, I'm stuck, I can't do it on my own. And the story of authentic Christian community is one where when you're sitting in a room and somebody in the room has a need that they can't take, like immediately it's groupthink, right? It's group fix. Like, okay, well, no, 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 we have money. We can do, that's easy. Like we can afford this, well, this you know, that, because it's us communally doing it together. And so part of what it means to be a sharing spiritual community is sharing our possessions, providing for any way, seeing the way that we have our possessions in a totally different way that is so countercultural, but that is informed by the, the power of the Holy Spirit on our lives. But it's not only that we share things among God's people. That's not just the feature of a sharing community. It is also that we share, those with those, share things with those who are outside of the church but who are in need. Because we, by nature of being a Christian community, are a sharing people. The very essence that Jesus teaches us is that by way, our way into the kingdom is to be a sharing people. Right To be a giving, outwardly expressing people, not just with those who are in our community, but even with those who are on the outside of our community, giving to those who are in need. It is, it is the hallmark of what it means to be a Christian community, that we are a giving, a sharing community. But it's not just about sharing the burden of leadership and work that we see back in Exodus 18. It's not just about sharing resources with those in the community who are in need. It's not just about sharing resources with those who are outside of the community who are in need. We're also told that we are supposed to share one another's burdens. Galatians 6, verse 2, Paul tells us, bear one another's burdens. Put the weight of what your neighbor is going through on your own shoulders. And if there is someone who is in need, if there is someone experiencing hardship, if there is someone who is overwhelmed by sin, if there is someone living under fear or anxiety, that burden that they have now becomes yours. You experience it as your own. You share that burden with them. My, uh, my family just recently, yesterday, we became for the first time uninsured. Um, I can't, I mean, thanks... I'm very grateful that I don't know of a time in our life when I wasn't insured, right? I didn't have health insurance. Um, but as of yesterday, we are uninsured. Um, and, and that sounds worse than it is. Um, we knew this was coming. Um, our insurance through my wife's work. Her last day of work was Friday. So we knew that come April 6th, Saturday, we don't have any health insurance. And so for the last couple months, we've been exploring um, like what to do, you know, you can buy health insurance in the marketplace or you can go through COBRA, you know, when you're leaving employment. But what we've also been exploring is there are, some of you may know, these kind of Christian health shares out there, which are these um, Christian communities where you, nobody has health insurance. Everyone just agrees that we will share, we'll all pay cash and we'll just share the costs the same across the board. So everybody will... Just pitch in the same amount, and you'll share it. Um, and just as a note, if you end up, there are some things about these Christian health shares things that I don't like, and if we stay with one for very long, I will probably become an active advocate for some changes to those things. They're no, not perfect by any means. But I really liked some of the things, because when I called them to kind of inquire, I, I kept kind of using the language of insurance, because I, that's what I'm used to. 
And they, the woman just kept correcting me and saying, no, 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 sir, we are not health insurance. This is not a health insurance plan. This is a Christian sharing network where everybody is going to just share the costs for health care together. So it's just everybody pays the same amount, healthy, sick, whatever it is, whatever your experience, you're all just going to be paying the same amount. And I, I really liked that, right, because even though there are parts of what they do that I, I don't love, I love the concept that as Christians, we are just going to share the burden of our medical expenses together, and that we're all going to enter into that. So we don't have health insurance. We are now a part of this Christian health sharing network where every month you get a name, and you just send that name money, and you write a little note, hey, we're praying for you, and they don't give you the details of their, obviously, of their medical issue, that you're, but there's like, you know, these little Christian moments, which, you know, I'm like, I'm so bad at cheesy Christian stuff, and I get vomity and stuff with most of that, but I actually, like, there's something kind of beautiful in it, that like, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna go in this, we're just gonna share the cost, and we don't know exactly what that'll be, but that's what we're gonna do, and so every month, we're just gonna start sending out our little share to people, and we're going to see how it goes, and then probably default back into the public health care system eventually. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I like, I like it. But, but I like it because this is the story of Christian, This is the story of what Jesus did in this world. That you could be a healthy person in the system, but you, you know, this, fine. Jesus in this world came in. He had no sin. He had no sickness. He had no suffering. But he entered into this world taking on flesh, taking on our reality, our sin, taking and carrying that burden himself. He shared our burden, a burden that his was not his to carry by merit, but he took it and he carried it anyway. And he calls us then, invites us to do that for one another by picking up the burden of our neighbors and carrying it for them. I say all of this because we have been trying to glean from Exodus what it looks like to be a community in transition that is entering into a new beginning, and especially as our two churches are worshiping together and growing in love for one another and sharing in fellowship together, what does it mean that we share in this Christian community? What does it mean that we share our possessions? What does it mean that we share one another's burdens? Perhaps it starts by sharing stories so that we can know the experience of our brothers and sisters and more meaningfully provide for their needs and carry their burdens. But if we're going to hear those stories, it takes intent on our part to hear those stories. We have to invite them to our home, invite them into our Ohana group. Perhaps it means that if you hear about someone from the other church that is sharing their story on a Friday night at family room, that you intentionally carve out the time to go and to hear that story and to allow it to enter into your own heart and soul. Perhaps it means that if someone in the church is in need of an organ transplant, that we don't just consider our bodies our own, but that these are bodies to be put to use for the good of the community, and so we go get tested to see if we can give up our possessions to someone who is in need. Two of the most powerful stories that I know out of High Rock, one from High Rock in Arlington, one from High Rock in Brookline. In Arlington, there was a, a, fa- a couple, and the woman uh, couldn't conceive. She couldn't carry a child to term. And so one of the other women at High Rock Arlington said, well, I have a womb, and it works. And so let me 
Give of my possession. Let me surrogate for you. I'll carry this baby. I'll birth this baby. And then after that, it's all you. Uh, but I will I'll give of my body for the sake of you and your family. Of course, I'll do that. And so she offered up her possession for the good of the community. At Brookline, we had a woman who was in need of a kidney transplant. She was on dialysis for a long time until one of our other women was tested and found to be a match. And so she put her body under surgical knife and gave up her kidney to provide for the woman that needed one. It was her body, but she didn't consider it just hers. And so she gave it up for the love of a sister. This is the sharing of Christian community. In Exodus 18, as God's people were just entering into this new life and this new beginning, he was starting small. Just share the workload. Share some leadership with a few people who are trusted. But as time went by, as the Holy Spirit came, we began to see that this sharing community was something far more than just sharing a little work or sharing a little leadership. It was sharing everything. That there was no longer what belongs to me. It's only what belongs to us. And that we would enter into that reality together. And so I want to um, conclude the sermon part just with a time of, of prayer and I want to invite you. I'm not sure. I, I thought about this a little bit. I'm not sure what the prayer is that you should pray. I, you know, the most natural thing was, oh, show me a way that I can share. Um, and that might be the prayer that's right for you. I think for some of us, the prayer might be, change my heart. Um, I need to think and see and feel and understand in a different way than I do now and that is that is challenging it's a, it's a real thing and so maybe the prayer for you is God send your spirit to change my heart and to make it like yours I don't know exactly what the right prayer is for you so I'm not going to define it um, but I want to invite us into a moment of prayer um, and maybe it's conf I don't know maybe it's confession maybe it's repentance maybe it's asking for us. I don't know what it is, but I'm going to give us all that time. I'll close us in a minute, and then we'll, uh, we'll go on together. You join me in prayer. Jesus, we thank you that you came and shared your life on our behalf, that you came into this world, flesh and blood, offered up that flesh and blood to be sacrificed on a cross, to carry our burdens and to save our souls. We thank you for that sacrifice and for your love. And we pray that the spirit that you have might be poured out on us, that we would be the kind of community that was so selfless, so giving, so generous, so open-handed, that people would look at us and wonder, what on earth are they doing how can they live like that? If there is selfishness in us, uh, we pray for forgiveness and we ask that it would go. For those who have been given much in our community, much is required. And I pray that you would give us the strength to be able to um, know your word, understand your word, and follow your word. Help us to be obedient. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.